All right, it's great to be with you this morning. It's my privilege to be here and uh, appreciate Pastor Albert having me uh, up here again. And it's probably a good thing. Uh, I'd rather hear him preach than hear myself preach, but it's probably a good thing if you've been on an overnight trip not to stay in the pulpit. Many a false doctrine has been taught just simply because of lack of sleep, you know. I remember some of the guys I went to grad school with, they would stay up all night and discuss the deep questions of theology, and, and I would sometimes hear parts of them, and I'm like, these guys need to get some sleep. That's what they really need. These answers aren't getting them anywhere. But we're very thankful to be here today, and I hope uh, you will learn from God's Word. If you will, turn to Titus chapter 3. We'll get to our text in, in just a, a few minutes. Titus was written, though, to... Uh, by Paul, by the Apostle Paul, uh, to, the, to the young man Titus who was serving on the island of Crete. And this island of Crete was, just to give you some historical background, which I think really informs what we want to talk about today, this island uh, is located south of the Greek mainland. It's actually still there today. It's in uh, south of Greece. It's a part of modern Greece. It's part of its nation- nationality. But it's one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean See, it has a very temperate climate. It's about 160 miles long by 35 miles wide at its widest point. So it's not an entirely huge island, but it's uh, important in the history of the early church. Uh, Crete itself has a quite a storied history. A lot of interesting facts about the island, but it's the host of one of Europe's earliest civilizations. It's called the Minoan civilization. If you studied history, you may have heard of that. Uh, it's passed political hands many times. People are known for their stubborn and rebellious spirit simply because they've been conquered and attacked over and over again throughout their their history. It took the Romans three years and three legions of soldiers to finally conquer the island in 69 B.C. A really difficult task for the Romans in their empire. Even in relatively modern history, Hitler in World War II tried to take the island of Crete and he sustained 7,000 paratrooper casualties trying to conquer the island, and he finally called the invasion off, saying these people are too stubborn and, and good for them. He changed his Mediterranean strategy after that, and the Cretans were known as strong-willed, stubborn, and very self-sufficient people. Probably the most famous philosopher was named Epimenides, and you, I haven't studied philosophy much, but you may have heard of his name before. Uh, he's a religious prophet and philosopher who lived around 600 B.C. He wrote about the religious cynicism of the Cretans. And probably why you've heard his, their, of his writings is because some of it's quoted actually in the Scriptures. When he defended, he had defended the immortality of Zeus, the Greek, Grecian god, which the Cretans themselves had denied, even though they should have, according to their surroundings, believed in Zeus. He wrote this poem. He said, They fashioned a tomb for thee, O High and Holy One, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Sound familiar? Last, uh, the last line there, and for in thee we live and move and have our being, is one that Paul quotes to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. He's confronting them for their lack of belief in the true God. He's confronting them in a unique way by by quoting one of their own poets, Paul says. Even one of your own poets has said, 
in thee we live and move and have our beings. Of course, Paul is confronting them because they wrote that about Zeus, the false god. But those words were actually true about the true and living God. Paul is confronting their lack of belief in the true and living God by quoting that line from their poem. The second line of the poem is, is well known in philosophy. It's called the Epimenides Paradox. Epimenides, who is himself a Cretan, writes this line, the Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. And so it's become this little little trick question, you know, was, was Epimenides telling the truth as a Cretan when he said Cretans are always liars? And people would think about that. Well, did a Cretan actually tell the truth? Because he said they're always liars, so he can't say they're always liars and still tell the truth, right? Well, Epimenides actually, Paul solves this little riddle. He quotes them in Titus 1.12 where he says, one of Crete's own prophets, he says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Paul kind of puts his stamp of of truth on on what he said, that it is true that Cretans are always or typically liars, beasts, and gluttons. Paul quotes this as well. He says, he has surely told the truth. In verse 13, the testimony is true because Cretans are sinners just like the rest of us. We all really are by nature liars. We're dishonest. We are evil. We're selfish. We're gluttons in one way or another, taking what God has provided for us by His grace and using it for our own self-serving purposes. So Paul here says what Epimenides actually says is true about Cretans, and it's really true about everyone. We're all wicked sinners before God. Paul himself, by the Holy Spirit, solved this Epimenides paradox and affirms that the people of of Crete were known liars, brutes, and gluttons, and sinners of the most notorious sort. But something had changed in the life of many of the Cretans. And Paul was writing to Titus to help him know how to lead these people who had now turned from their lying ways, their gluttonous ways, to serving the true and living God. In Acts 27, we see a history of the fact the ship that Paul was riding on on his journey to Rome had harbored in Crete. And no doubt Paul began then sharing the message of the gospel with those Cretans that Epimenides had talked about, as well as those who were on the ship itself. Paul went on to Rome, was later released, returned to visit Crete with Titus, the one to whom he's writing this epistle. He went there, and they evidently carried out the work of the gospel because as they evangelized and discipled believers, they were formed into local churches. And now Paul is writing to Titus to tell him how to organize those churches and what to exhort those believers about in living as a faithful church on the island of Crete. The gospel, which had shown itself powerful in other places, had itself changed the lives of many of these stubborn, gluttonous, lying Cretans. And Titus was left to set the churches in order. He was left to appoint elders for the churches that were there on that island. And Paul writes this letter to give Titus instruction on how to strengthen those churches for long-term representation of Jesus Christ on that island full of of evil people. In chapter 1, he instructs Titus about the problem of false teachers that would arise and the need to carefully select elders who would lead God's people and guard the truth in those churches. In chapter 2 of Titus, Paul focuses Titus's instruction on various segments of the church. He talks about older men and younger men. He talks about older women and younger women. He talks about slaves and masters. He wants to make sure that the church is a living 
body of people from all generations interacting with each other and sharing instruction with each other and helping to mature one another in the faith. That there were no social social systems like even slavery and masters that would, would overwhelm the body and the unity that should be the case in a local church. So Paul gives Titus instruction about that in chapter 2. He encourages them that in order to maintain effective evangelistic outreach as an established church in their culture, they were going to have to maintain testimonies of loving, selfless, righteous lives in the midst of their pagan culture. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, that they would be a people for God's own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. And here in chapter 3, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul calls the Cretan believers to have conduct before their unbelieving culture, their fellow Cretans. He calls them to have conduct that is constantly mindful of the gospel. And so I want to encourage us today to have conduct that is mindful of the gospel. We don't live on an island. We actually live on a peninsula, right? Michigan's a peninsula between two and, well, many great lakes. We don't live on an island, but we live in a culture which is marked by selfishness. We live in a culture that is marked by indulgence. We live in a culture that is marked by dishonesty. People are not honest before God about their situation. Even in recent history, our young people are taught from the time they are born and raised up that they are inherently good. There couldn't be a, a more damaging lie to someone to believe than that they're inherently good. Because then they go on their way thinking they are the one that is in control of their life. They are the guardian of their own soul, the captain of their fate, as one poet has said. But it's not true. We are not good. We are sinners, and we need God's grace. We need God's grace to make us good by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul's encouraging Titus to share with these Cretans how they could live lives in the midst of their culture that would be marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They wanted to be people who are clearly called by God's grace into the church, but people that are still in a culture that needs the gospel. They're left among the people of the world among whom they live. They're called by God's grace as the church to reach the people around them with the gospel. And practically, the first eight verses, which we're going to look at, really the first 11 verses of chapter 3, gives them an ethic, a Christian ethic. How to live in the midst of an ungodly culture. How to live so they would best reflect the grace and glory of God. How should they as Christians have Christian conduct in the midst of a Cretan culture? So I'm not going to uncover any great mysteries. This is no midnight discussion we're having today. What this is is a very practical message about how you can live and be reminded to live in the midst of a culture that needs Jesus Christ. So I hope it will be something that, you know, there may be some things you think, you know, I'm doing pretty well at doing that. But there may be other things, like even when I was reviewing for this message, I'm thinking, I need to really shore up some areas of my life so that I'm effectively reflecting Jesus Christ in the midst of the unbelievers that are all around me. So I, I don't work with very many unbelievers, I hope. I work at a church. So I, hopefully I don't work with any unbelievers, okay? But I live around a lot of them, and I, I take you know, buy things from many of them. And I and I, I drive my car past a lot of them. Some of them, a lot of them pass me in my car. And there's a lot of things we do to interact with unbelievers. 
We need to make sure that we are reflecting Jesus Christ in the midst of an unbelieving culture. And that's what Paul is urging Titus to urge the believers there to do, to exhort them and reprove them and encourage them to have clear Christian conduct in the midst of their Cretan culture. The first thing I want us to, to see is that we must maintain a clear testimony in our common life before unbelievers. We must maintain a clear testimony in our common life before unbelievers. Now, it's easy for us to think about evangelism in certain categories. We often think, okay, evangelism is perhaps giving a gospel tract to someone. That's one means of evangelism. We sometimes think, well, evangelism is having special meetings for a week at our church where we invite people to hear the gospel. And that is another means of evangelism. We often as well think evangelism is having an event where we we do something that everyone enjoys. You know, we play golf or we eat food. Everyone enjoys that. You know, we get together and we share the gospel with people there. And that is another means of evangelism. Those are all means to share the gospel with people. But one of the most effective means God tells us to to be considerate of is the means of living our common life before unbelievers. Sharing the truth we believe, but living according to that truth so they can see the change the gospel makes in our lives. That's really what Paul wants to remind Titus of here in verses 1 and 2. We must maintain a clear testimony in our common life before unbelievers. Let me go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 8 of Titus chapter 3. Paul says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and acceptable and profitable for men. God wants us to live lives that reflect Jesus Christ in the midst of an unbelieving culture. We must maintain a clear testimony before unbelievers. I say that in verses 1 and 2 when Paul says remind them of some things. Paul's telling them, listen, you're living in the midst of an unbelieving culture and and you need to always be reminding your believers that you're pastoring. You need to be reminding the elders that you're placing in front of different churches. You need to be reminding them to remind believers to live in these ways, in these ways before an unbelieving culture. I want to give us a few points of some things we need to be reminded of in our common life. First of all, we should be exemplary citizens under our government. We should be exemplary citizens under our government. That is, practically, we should be obedient and submissive in the midst of an autonomous culture. One of the traits of America is individualism. We have that spirit. We have that individual spirit where anyone can do what they set out to do. And so we we have a mindset in our culture that that, hey, we're on our own. And so 
We can do our own thing. We can express our own opinion. And we can live our own way. And we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Well, Paul says, actually, I wanted to remind you to be subject to rulers and to authorities. As a Christian, we have a different mindset. We don't have that individualism trumps everything mindset. We understand that that God has arranged an order for life. And one of the things God has done is is set up governing authorities in our lives to protect us and to to take care of evil men. The most famous passage that refers to this is Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, 1 through 3, Paul gives us the reason this is so important for our testimony. As believers, one of the chief things we believe is the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is in control of all things. So Paul tells us in Romans that everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority unless God has placed that authority over us. The authorities that exist are put there by God. Paul tells us that God placed governing authorities not to be a terror to good workers, but to evil ones. He says, do what's good and you'll have praise from them. Paul tells us generally that we are to understand God has placed authorities over us and that we are to submit to those authorities. And Paul reminds us here in Titus as well to be subject to rulers, to authorities. That word, or that verb, be subject, is an interesting one. It's the same one that's used when it it encourages wives to submit themselves to their husbands. It's a word that has the idea of arranging our own opinions, our own decisions, our own desires, underneath those of someone else. So Paul tells us, when it comes to obeying laws, to obeying the rulers that are around us, we are to arrange our individualistic desires underneath theirs because God has placed them over us. It carries the idea of willingly, gladly submitting ourselves to the rulers God has placed over us. And these words, rulers and authorities, these are broad enough words to encompass all of our governmental authorities. This is difficult to do sometimes because uh, it's easy to do when, when Ronald Reagan was president, right? Okay, because we're all like, yeah, tear that wall down, Mr. Gorbachev, we're with you. But when there's someone that's in office above us that we disagree with, philosophically, spiritually in many cases, it's difficult for us to gladly arrange ourselves underneath a governing authority. But I want to encourage you, even in the midst of a democracy where we have the ability to make our voice heard and to vote for other people to take their place, when someone's in office over us, in our testimony among unbelievers, that we are careful to make sure that we give an attitude of glad submission to those God has placed over us. From the highest level down to the local level. Provides you a great opportunity to maintain a shining testimony for Jesus Christ. Provides a great opportunity for you to tell people around you that, hey, listen, I may disagree politically and with many of the decisions that are made, but... You know, I'm praying, I'm praying for our government. I'm supporting them. I'm paying my taxes. I'm not fleeing the country. I'm doing what I can to be an exemplary citizen in the midst of an unbelieving culture. And so Paul encourages Titus to encourage the believers in Crete to do that. I think it's a way we can show our submission to God in the midst of our common life. We're to obey these authorities. It says, be obedient. Be obedient. After it says, be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient and ready for every good deed. The logical outgrowth of our submission is to arrange our will under the will of our authorities to be obedient to them. 
to gladly obey from ordinances to traffic laws to paying taxes to providing services. We are to obey those in authority over us. I remember one time I was, I was, I've only been stopped by the police once. It doesn't mean I only deserved it once. Okay. Confession is good for the soul. But I was stopped once. Uh, I was driving to uh, a long time ago, and I was driving to, to an event I needed to be at, and and I uh, came to a corner. There's a corner near us in Dixon, Southfield. It's often really busy, so I cut through the neighborhood. The police officer stopped me. I didn't know it was wrong to do it at the time. I just thought, you know, I drive this way a lot anyway to go to the supermarket, so I'm, I'm going to cut through here and, and get on 75. And, and he pulled me over, and he's like, you know, you know you're not allowed to cut through the neighborhood to avoid traffic. And I was like, I didn't realize that. But then he goes, wait a second. You're that pastor over, over there, you know, because... Two weeks before that, we'd had a missionary in town. He was in an accident. I'd come to try to talk to the, the police officer and stuff. He goes, you're that pastor. I can't give you a ticket. So, like, well, you could, but that's okay. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need it if, I, if you don't want to give it to me. So, but, you know, I could have complained. I could have yelled and screamed. I don't know. I, I probably might have in a different circumstance. But because I had, had, a good, had been a good example to that police officer in the accident before, and now he knew who I was, had a good testimony. Uh, I think that was a helpful thing in our relationship. And so I don't know what your circumstances have been, but make sure you have a glad attitude of obedience and submission when you have the opportunity to do that. Of course, we know that principle is an absolute, right? Paul says in Acts 5.29 that, that we should obey God rather than men. If there's ever a situation where our authorities in our life and our secular life contradict, directly contradict what God has told us to do, we are certainly to go with a higher authority. If an authority says, you may not share the gospel, God has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that we should obey God rather than men. And that's really the situation Paul was talking about. They had authorities telling them to stop telling people about Jesus Christ. And Paul says, wait a second. Uh, we, are, we are to be telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to obey God rather than man. I'm sorry, that's Peter, not Paul. You must obey God rather than man. But generally, we have the opportunity to be an exemplary testimony by obeying the authorities God has placed over our life. The next point we see in this obeying God in, our, in the common areas of our life and being a testimony before people is that we should be good doers in the midst of a selfish society. Paul goes on to say there, we should be ready for every good deed. We should be people that seek to do good to others in the midst of a selfish society. Remember those Cretans were, were lazy gluttons. They were very selfish people. And, and Paul's telling these Cretans that are believers now to, to make the effort to go outside of yourself to do good to people around you. To live selfless lives in the midst of a selfish society. We have a lot of opportunities to do that. Even as Christians, it's very easy for us to retreat into our areas of comfort, to our selfish areas, to, to use all of our money for ourselves, use all of our time for ourselves, use all of our energy for ourselves, and then the free time we have left to use that for ourselves, for entertainment or recreation. It's very easy to become self-consumed and self-centered when it comes to the use of our time and our resources. But Paul says we should be those who are, who are ready for every good deed. That, that we're ready has the idea of, of anticipating some opportunity to do something good for those around you. To be ready, it's like 
You're not looking out your curtains to spy on your neighbors. You're looking out your curtains to see an opportunity to help your neighbors. Right? Been an accident in front of our house recently, and you know, a neighbor was peeking through the blinds. You know, they're like they're spying on us. They're not ready to help us. They're good neighbors, but but we should be the kind that are ready to help, ready to move out and help those who are around us. We should be good doers in the midst of a selfish society. This is one of the most powerful ways we can be a testimony for Jesus Christ in the midst of a selfish culture because we live among people who do all they do for their own selves. And Homer Kent, one commentator, says, the Christian dare not hold himself aloof from the world around him. He must use his influence for good and commend his gospel to those around him. You say, but the people around me, they don't deserve help. They're not using their money for, for what they should. Their budgets are terrible. They're, they're wasting a lot. They're not working hard. You know what? Since when has the depravity of others become an excuse for us not to do good for them? Paul says, be ready for every good deed. In chapter 2, verse 14, he had actually said, be zealous for good deeds. Remember Thomas, the zealot, the disciple of Christ? He was called the zealot because they knew he was, he was a Jew who wanted to overthrow the government, the empire. But he was known for his desire to do that. And so we, as Christians, should be known as zealots for good deeds. See, man, that, that neighbor of mine, they're always wanting to help. They're zealots for good deeds. We should be good doers in the midst of a selfish society. Third point we see in verse 2. We should be considerate of all people in the midst of an inconsiderate culture. To malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We should be considerate to all people in the midst of an inconsiderate culture. None of us like inconsiderate people, do we? Especially inconsiderate drivers. You like people that cut you off, that don't use their turn signal, that, that try to run up on your bumper, or stop fast in front of you, or maybe go really slow on the interstate. Maybe go 50 miles an hour when the speed limit is 70. You're like, these people are so inconsiderate. Paul says, Christians should be marked as being considerate people in the midst of an inconsiderate culture. He states this, this uh, consideration negatively first. He says, we are to malign no one. We're not to go about speaking badly about people. That's what Paul says. We're to speak positively about people. Some people around me are very good at this. You know, you start talking about, you know, oh, Kwame Kilpatrick, he's destroyed Detroit, you know, and they're, they're talking negatively about this person or that person. And you know, there's always that person in the, in the group that says, you know, he needs the Lord. And, and I know some people laugh, but then really, for the most part, we're rebuked. We're like, you know what? The punishment he is facing in prison for the deeds and lies he has, he has done is, is nothing compared to the eternal punishment he'll face before God. And, and a Christian should have a heart of compassion that desires to see his life change. To malign no one. We're to speak positively about people in general. We're not to revile. We're not to heap curses on. We're not to speak down on people, to blaspheme them. This is not saying that they're not sinners. It's not saying that they haven't committed faults. They haven't done wrong. It's, it's saying, listen, that's the way I was before God rescued me. So, I want to see God do a work in their lives. Jesus Christ was the primary example in 1 Peter 2.23. Peter says, when being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to one who judges righteously. So the question always comes up, what if they're, they're maligning you or they're reviling you? Can't you defend yourself? 
Peter says, follow Jesus Christ. When he was maligned, he didn't malign in return. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. What did he do? He says, you know what? There's someone higher than this person that's in control. It's God himself. I'm going to entrust myself to him because he judges righteously. No spirit of vengeance because God says, I will repay, says the Lord. God will take care of those things. We don't make personal attacks. We don't go about being disagreeable, Paul says, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men, not to be quarrelsome, as translated in other places, not being a quarrelsome or contentious person to have to give or return ill and provoking language. Matthew Henry says, A holy contending there is for matters good and important. He's probably talking about doctrinal, doctrinal matters and such. In a manner suitable and becoming, not with wrath or injurious violence. Christians must follow the things that are conductive to peace. In a peaceful, not a rough and boisterous or hurtful way, but as becomes the servants of God with peace and love. We're to be peaceable, not disagreeable. He he paints this characteristic positively as well. He says we're to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Gentle, having a reputation of being kind and tolerant and courteous, willing to yield to others rather than stubbornly insisting on one's own will or one's own rights. So, you go out to eat for lunch. If the waitress doesn't get your order right, you stubbornly insist on your own rights. You know, they're here to serve me. I'm paying them for this meal. Or are you courteous and gentle? Are you careful? Be kind to that person. What if a referee doesn't make the right call at the game? Okay? It's just part of the game. Everyone yells at the refs, right? Well, yeah, everyone does yell at the refs, but the Christian should be kind and courteous and gentle and peaceable, submissive to authorities of all kinds. Showing every consideration for all men. The translation translates this, showing true humility. The other traits show how we act and react, but this one expresses the inner virtue that produces those qualities. The virtue of humility, fruit of the Spirit that shows that we are obeying God rather than our own selfish desires. These things can be a great testimony in our common life before those who are around us. And secondly, we must remember, the second main point is we must remember that we are that we were graciously called out of the culture that surrounds us. We were graciously called out of the culture that surrounds us. I say those words carefully. We were graciously called. You know, when you see people around you and you get frustrated with their sin, remember that you once were such as they are. You were there. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and in sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, He didn't give us what we deserved. He was merciful instead. The great love with which He loved us while we were dead. Right? God showed His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul tells us we have to remember we were graciously called out of the Cretan culture. Verse 3, he says, Remember our former condition. He says, we were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul gives us this list of, of sinful characteristics that were true of us before God intervened in our lives. Now, Paul often does this to tell us 
That's the way you used to be, so don't keep living like that. Paul often does that in different passages. In this case, he has more of, a, more of an effort to tell them to say, remember, if you get frustrated with the sin of those around you, remember that you used to be just like that. Have compassion on people who are around you living in sin. They're foolish. They're without spiritual understanding. They're disobedient. They willfully disregard authority because that is the guiding principle in their heart, that of autonomy. They're deceived. God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're enslaved to lust and pleasure. John says whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. They spend their life in malice and envy. The people of this world, another guiding principle they have is one of, of putting others down so they can exalt themselves, that malice or envy of seeing those who are better than them and wanting what that person has. Malice and envy are guiding principles of the world around us. As Christians, we have to be living in direct contradiction to malice, wanting to put someone down by encouraging them, and envy, being envious of what someone has by saying, being content with what God has given us. Paul says, we also were like that. Remember what we once were. And if we remember what we once were, we'll be much more patient with those who still are what we once were. Because if it weren't for God's grace, we would be there still. If you were saved later in your life, you know this. You remember this. You remember what you once were. You remember how you were bound in sin and selfish and, and evil in your heart. And you remember how God shown his light in your life to give you a perspective that is thankful for God's grace and thankful for Jesus Christ. You remember that. Some of you were saved when you were younger. Perhaps you didn't rem- don't remember actually thinking that way quite as much. And, and so Paul reminds us that you once were like that, and if God hadn't intervened in your life, you definitely would have been like that as you got older. We also once were is a statement we should never forget. When we remember what we once were, we will be much more careful about exhibiting the characteristics of what we now are. When we remember what we once were, we'll be much more expectant and confident in proclaiming the gospel to those who now are, because they may be able to be placed in a position of once were as well. God can change their lives. When we remember what we once were, we'll look forward to how God will change people around us as they experience the grace that we have experienced as well. Think of the testimonies of friends of believers that you have. How God has changed them. Such an encouraging thing. Remember how God has intervened in our lives. Remember that our present condition and blessing are certainly nothing we deserve. Paul goes on to say this very well-known passage. When the kindness of God our Savior appeared, His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of any deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit who He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And we are justified by His grace and made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul reminds these believers that all that you have is because Christ has done it for you. All that you've been given is because of the grace and mercy of Almighty God. So as you live before a worldly culture around you, remember, God's grace has changed you. God's grace has gifted you. God's grace has given you an eternal home with Him. God's grace has given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because you're anything good, 
is because Christ was perfectly good. He saved you not on any, the basis of any deeds that you have done, but according to his mercy. Remember, our present condition is not deserved. It's given as a gracious gift. Our present blessings are a result of God's active love for us. It's a result of God's saving us, saving us, snatching us out of deserved judgment. I had the opportunity this weekend to make a trip down to Indiana for the ordination counseling service of a friend, a boyhood friend of mine, a kid I was friends with when I was in elementary school. And he was being ordained for ministry. And, and so we went back to this church that I was saved in about 32 years ago. It's in farmland, Indiana. Actually, it's not even in farmland, Indiana. It's so far out in the country that the World Wide Web hasn't reached it yet. So we got lost. I, you know, we drove there many times when I was a kid, but, but we got lost on the way there, and we finally made it to the service. So it was a blessing to be back there. Really, it was a spiritual blessing to me because I remember the day I, I went forward and prayed to receive Christ as my Savior in that church, in a little church, about half, half the size, well, it's like a third of the size of this auditorium, a little church out in the country. And it was a good reminder to me that God saved me by His grace, by His mercy. And if God hadn't done that, I would be like anyone around me, anyone around me, living for themselves, living in sin, uh, bound for an eternal hell. In this passage, in this passage, God reminds these Christians that they need to have an ethic of godliness. They need to have an ethic of selflessness. They need to have an ethic that desires to see others with compassion and to spread the gospel to others who could be saved the same way they were saved. God encourages these people to live the Christian conduct, Christian compassion in the midst of a unchristian or Cretan culture. How do we as Christians conduct ourselves in the midst of our unbelieving culture? We need to maintain the distinct testimony before unbelievers, even in our common life. The way we live, the way we talk, the way we interact with people. We need to remember that we were graciously called out of that unchristian culture. Reminder of God's grace will do a great thing for how we interact in front of people and with people that are unbelievers. I hope this has been a reminder for you who are believers today. A reminder that will help you live gospel-centered lives. If here today, if you are here today and you have not believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you that God can rescue you from your selfish belief system. God can rescue you from the guilt that you feel because of your sin. God can provide the righteousness of Jesus Christ by His grace. God is a merciful and good God who will save you and allow you to live for Him. I would encourage you to, if you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, come and talk to, to me or Pastor Elward after the service. We'll be glad to share the truth with you. And I hope you'll be encouraged to live a Christian testimony in light of an unchristian world. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace you've shown to us. God, you've been good. You've been good to us. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. We deserve your judgment and condemnation. And yet you have reached down and moved and acted on our behalf. You saved us not on the basis of anything we've done, but according to your mercy. You've regenerated us. You've brought us into new life through Jesus Christ. You've washed us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for saving us, God. Lord, help us, especially today, to see those around us 
an unbelieving world, a culture that is selfish, self-centered, sinful. Help us to see them with compassion as people to whom, for whom Christ has died, as people that the gospel can change and transform. Lord, and help us to, to live before them with joy, with kindness and gentleness, to live before them as those who are submissive to even governing authorities around us, who are people who seek to do good, who are zealous for good deeds. Help us to do that for your honor and glory and for the spread of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.